Good morning. Welcome again, especially if you're visiting with us. Uh, if you are visiting our church for the first time today, you are in for a treat. We are at five chapters of ritual purity laws in Leviticus. We begin an eight-week sermon series on leprosy today. Just kidding. Um, no, this does seem to us to be a very, very strange section of the Bible. Uh, it's in many ways very graphic, uh, but it's interesting for you guys. Traditionally, uh, in Jewish pedagogy, uh, training children in the Bible, Leviticus is the first book that they teach kids. Uh, they, say they need to learn about purity. So we continue through Leviticus today. Leviticus 11, I'm going to cover five chapters today, but I will only read the end of chapter 11 to give you a flavor for kind of the whole thing, but also because this is one of the sections of it that stands back a little bit and talks about the purpose of all of this. Um, the, these chapters are not very concerned with the rationale behind them. They don't explain to you why this and not that, uh, but they will occasionally tell you the larger purpose for it. What is it supposed to be doing and helping us with? Not necessarily why this and not that. Um, and that particularly becomes important as the rest of the Bible goes on and you get into the New Testament, um, which uh, assumes many of these things in terms of the larger theology and purpose of them. So Leviticus chapter 11, I'll start reading at verse 39 and I'll read through verse 47. This is the end of the laws about food, kosher laws about food. Leviticus 11.39. And if any animal which you may eat dies, whoever touches its carcass shall be unclean until the evening. And whoever eats of its carcass shall wash his clothes and be unclean until the evening. And whoever carries the carcass shall wash his clothes and be unclean until the evening. Every swarming thing that swarms on the ground is detestable. It shall not be eaten. Whatever goes on its belly and whatever goes on all fours or whatever has many feet, all swarming things that swarms on the ground, you shall not eat, for they are detestable. You shall not make yourselves detestable with any swarming thing that swarms, and you shall not defile yourselves with them and become unclean through them. For I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. You shall not defile yourselves with any swarming thing that crawls on the ground. For I am the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. This is the law about beast and bird and every living creature that moves through the waters and every creature that swarms on the ground to make a distinction between the unclean and the clean and between the living creature that may be eaten and the living creature that may not be eaten. This is the word of the Lord. Please pray with me and for me. Lord, we come to you this morning uh, at this part of the Bible that is, seems very strange to us, uh, very obscure, maybe even offensive, uh, and Lord, we ask that you would open our eyes so that we might see beautiful things, even here. Uh, most of all, Lord, we ask that you would help us to see your grace, that we would see in light of how desperately uh, sinful we are, in light of how desperately unclean we are before you, how wonderful it is that you have provided the sacrifice of your son Jesus to purify us for all of eternity. Help us this morning, we pray in his name. Amen. Uh, so, like we said, we have arrived at these somewhat infamous chapters of the book of Leviticus about ritual purity. 
Uh, I'm going to spend quite a bit more time than usual introducing this whole thing to try to help you guys understand the big picture of all of this, and then we'll spend some time kind of running through them more quickly. Uh, but the, they don't just show up here for no reason at this point in the book of Leviticus. There's a reason that they come where they do in the book. Uh, we left off last week in Leviticus chapter 10 with this horrible story about Aaron's, he's the high priest, his two sons on their first day of work, this story about the two of them barging into the holy places of the tabernacle, the tent, the special tent. Uh, and because they have barged into that part of the tabernacle when they weren't supposed to, God immediately killed them. Uh, one of the big points of Leviticus is that it is God's very nature to be alive. God can't not be alive, unlike you and me. Uh, and so because God's very nature is to be alive, he cannot and will not tolerate any hint of death. But don't misunderstand that. That's not because God is somehow threatened by death. Uh, he's afraid of it. He's worried about it. Uh, but rather because God's life overwhelms death because God's life overpowers death whenever it comes into contact with him. And so uh, we've just finished hearing about that with these two priests in Leviticus 10, and then in Leviticus 16, in six more chapters, we're going to hear again. There's going to be another kind of very short retelling of that story about those two sons, uh, about how they brought a kind of pollution into the tabernacle with them uh, in their sin and especially in their deaths. Uh, and then in the rest of Leviticus 16, we're going to hear about a very special annual ceremony called the Day of Atonement. We'll spend one whole week on that next week. And so in between these two tellings of this story about the deaths of Nadab and Abihu, you have five chapters of rules about purity and impurity. The main point of these chapters is to underscore the idea that the living God is entirely pure, and that if we are ever to approach him in worship and friendship, we also need to be pure. We need to be purified of our deathly pollution. Now, here's something that's really, really important for us to understand. These uh, rules are talking about ritual purity. They are not talking about moral purity. To be ritually impure is not the same thing as being sinful or evil or bad. I'll say that again. To be ritually impure is not the same thing necessarily as being sinful or evil or bad. Uh, we're going to see that there are many normal, uh, even necessary even many good things that make you ritually impure. Things that the Bible clearly praises and blesses and even commands. Uh, things like childbirth, things like sex with your spouse. All of those things make you ritually impure. There are plenty of things that people living under these rules in the Old Testament would consciously choose to do knowing that they will make them ritually impure and these people are not sinning by doing so. They don't need to be forgiven of anything. Uh, it seems very strange to us at first. It's kind of hard to think of parallels to this kind of thing in our own society. But um, let me give you an illustration that maybe will help. Uh, consider a wedding. Uh, in our culture, our weddings have lots of rituals in them. Uh, a bride wears a white dress to show that she is in a distinct and a new ritual state. Uh, 
Uh, she is not a better person because she's the only woman there who happens to be wearing white. Uh, everyone else is not bad because they're not wearing white. Uh, spouses in a wedding exchange little golden rings with each other. Again, it's another ritual. Uh, it shows them and it shows the world at some level what marriage is about. It shows that they are in a new category, a new state. Uh, you're not a bad person if you don't have a golden circle on the exact right finger. It's not even strictly logical uh, why you do it on this finger and not that finger, why you can just wear a necklace instead or get a tattoo on your forehead or something. It's just kind of what we do. Our society has all kinds of rituals. It's really hard for us to think of them because they don't feel like rituals to us. It just feels like well, this is just normal. This is just what we do. Um, but there are rituals all over the place. Uh, even in the last couple years, we've developed many new rituals uh, that many people have just kind of adopted really quickly, and we just go along with it, and it feels normal. Um, and so this isn't quite as strange as it might seem at first. A couple weeks ago, if you were here, I gave you a cheat sheet for Leviticus. I think we're out of those. Maybe I'll try to bring some more next week. Uh, I reprinted one of the diagrams from it for you uh, in the bulletin today because um, I want to help you guys understand this. Uh, in the Bible, there are basically two ritual categories. Uh, there's holy, and then there's common. So there's holy things, and then everything else falls under the category of common, normal. Uh, underneath that category of common, there are two subcategories. There's clean and unclean. So those are both versions of being common. Holy is its own category. Um, a better way, I think, to translate the words for clean and unclean is pure and impure, I'll try to use that phrasing uh, for the rest of the morning. It helps us, I think, to see that we're not really strictly talking about hygiene. We're not talking about dirt or germs or E. coli. Uh, we're talking about a, a ritual reality, something that's having to do with a, a, the religious spiritual plane more than we're talking about uh, strictly hygienic things. Purity, for the ancient Israelites, because they were chosen by God as his chosen people, purity was the normal default state. Uh, you just kind of began with purity, so to speak, if you were an Israelite. Impurity is the category furthest away from holiness. And so because holiness is fundamentally about life and integrity and wholeness, uh, these are things that are infinitely true of God. That's what holiness is all about. Uh, the reason that you move away from holiness and toward impurity is because of experiencing death at some level. Uh, maybe you yourself die, you touch something dead, you're around something dead. Uh, death, uh, in the biblical way of thinking, is a manifestation of chaos and disorder. And so when you experience death, when you experience things that relate to death or that remind us of death or that evoke death, you move uh, categories. You move away from holiness. The way that you move back toward holiness, out of impurity or out of purity into holiness, the way that you move back toward holiness is usually through life. So you get away from holiness through death, you get back to holiness through life. Uh, and remember, we said our first week in Leviticus, uh, in the biblical way of thinking, the Old Testament way of thinking, the way that you experience life is through atoning sacrifice, uh, through vicarious death in my place by a blameless victim whose blood, which Leviticus says is the life, the blood is the life, that blood now ritually rescues you from the danger of sin, but that blood also ritually cleanses you from the dirtiness of sin, the pollution of sin. That's what the Bible calls atonement. 
So the laws are about ritual purity. They are about how the Israelites, uh, for a certain period of time, and the way God was dealing with people on earth, how the Israelites would fall out of and get back into this category of purity. And the main reason you wanted to be pure, the most important thing about being pure, is because you had to be ritually pure in order to approach God in worship. You had to be ritually pure to approach God in worship. If you were ritually impure, no matter what the reason was, no matter uh, if morality had anything to do with it, if you were ritually impure, you could not come worship God, period. No exceptions. Now, here's something else really important. The laws are meant to point beyond themselves to a deeper moral purity. They are about ritual purity, but they're not only about ritual purity. They are meant to point beyond themselves to moral purity. Uh, And that's very clear in the Bible that God is far more concerned about moral purity than he is about ritual impurity, than he is about external rules and rites. The Old Testament prophets are constantly getting at this. Uh, Earlier in the service, I read to you that verse from the prophet Isaiah. This is the very beginning of the book of Isaiah. Uh, The book opens up by acknowledging that God's people, the Israelites, are really good at bringing all these sacrifices. They go through all these uh, rituals uh, to be ritually pure. Uh, but actually their lives are a moral disaster. Uh, God says in the first chapter of Isaiah, I hate your sacrifices. You're doing them correctly, but I hate them. They make me want to vomit. And the reason that they do is because the people are treating each other terribly. Uh, They're living in morally horrible ways. And so God says to them, wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Get rid of this evil from before my eyes. I don't want your worship if this is how you're going to act, if this is how you're going to treat me. Uh, We heard again in Psalm 51, our confession of sin this morning, David repeatedly asking God after he's done something very seriously sinful, he asks God to cleanse me, uh, wash me, create in me a clean heart. He realizes that the sacrifices that God is really after are the sacrifices of your very hearts. Did you catch that? He said the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. The sacrifices of God are a broken and contrite heart. That's what God really is after. That's what these rules are pointing forward to. And so this is what the New Testament means. When Jesus comes and he appoints people to write down his words for us today, they keep talking about this stuff. They tell us that all these ceremonies from the Old Testament are really just shadows pointing toward a reality. They're the dream. Jesus is the reality that has come. First of all, they are pointing beyond themselves to the final and the total cleansing that Jesus would give us through his own final self-sacrifice on the cross. Uh, And because Jesus goes through the one last great final sacrifice, that renders all these other original rituals now unnecessary. That's why uh, we don't kill animals as we come into church today. Paul says in Ephesians 5 that Jesus has cleansed his people by the washing of water with the word. And so the first thing these are pointing us to is we think about them being a shadow pointing us to a reality. The first reality they point us to is that Jesus has purified his people. Jesus has made us pure in God's sight to the extent that he is himself pure before God already, the only man ever to live who never was morally impure. But these rituals and these laws also point us to God's continued desire today for his people to be morally pure. Jesus said in Mark 7, Eric read this earlier, Mark 7 says, it's not what goes in that makes you impure, but it's what comes out. It's what comes out of your heart that makes you impure. 
The Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 7 that Christians today, in light of everything God has done for us, in light of the fact that he's made us his temple, so to speak, in light of the fact that we are clean before him, in light of all those things, Paul says we should cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit. This language is all over the Bible. It's all over the New Testament. This is why it's important to go through even very strange books like Leviticus. These rituals underscore for us today, just like they did for the Israelites back then, they underscore this big problem, but especially the big solution that we've been saying Leviticus is all about. The big problem is that our sin has separated us from God, but the greater solution is that God has very graciously and kindly provided a way for us to come back home to Him. And that is particularly and climactically true in Jesus. Jesus is God's final priest. He's God's final cleansing sacrifice. So that's the big picture of what all these strange rules are doing. Uh, But now let's look at them more specifically. Uh, We're going to see that God back then and God still today, as we learn about them, even though we don't actually do them in the same way, God wants his people to see in every aspect of their lives, God wants his people to see that he is holy and pure, but that we are sinful and disordered. But that in spite of that, the holy, pure God has graciously provided cleansing sacrifice so that we can come back home to him. So the first thing, God shows us his purity and grace through food. Through food. That's chapter 11. The Israelites could only eat certain kinds of animals. The rationale for these food laws has baffled readers for thousands of years. Uh, There are many, many different explanations trying to figure out why this animal, why not that animal. Uh, But like I said, they are far more concerned with a larger theological purpose than they are with a logical basis. However, I'll give you my best guess. Uh, I am quite confident that these rules are not about hygiene or diet. Uh, or nutrition. It's not like some people have said, oh, maybe those animals were worse for you, or maybe they'd make you more sick, or uh, maybe they're just kind of gross. I don't think that's what it is. Uh, that's kind of a modern way to think that, oh, it's all about you know, staying physically fit. I don't think that's what it is. They probably have to do with normalcy. Uh, animals that are more normal, so to speak, are clean. The animals that are abnormal for their category are unclean, are impure. And the main categories are where they move around. So you have land animals, you have air animals, uh, insects and birds, and then you have water animals. Those are kind of the three categories. Land animals, according to this chapter, that split their hoof and thoroughly chew their food, those are clean animals. So cows, goats, sheep. Uh, Animals that either walk on their hands, so to speak, they have paws, they look like they have fingers. Uh, That's not appropriate. Why would you walk on your hands? That's silly. Uh, So animals that walk on their hands or animals that eat very sloppily or quickly, those are impure animals. Uh, Flying animals, normally, again, so kind of put yourself in the shoes of kind of what's normal depending on where you move around. Flying animals normally walk around on two legs and they fly with wings. Uh, But birds of prey, those are ritually impure because they are so closely tied to corpses and blood and death. So don't, don't touch those. Don't eat those. Most insects are impure because they fly, so that's normal. But, sorry, insects, you walk around on all fours, so to speak. They don't have four legs, of course, everyone knew that even back then, but they're, they're scurrying around on all of them all the time, and why would you do that? That's weird. Yeah, that's not what you do. 
Um, so, but then he says grasshoppers and crickets, those are okay. You can eat those because they hop around on two legs, so to speak, like birds do. Uh, water animals normally swim with scales and fins. Otherwise, they're abnormal and therefore impure. Don't eat them. Be careful about touching their dead bodies. Uh, then you have this whole category of animals called swarmers. Today, we might call them creepy crawly type things. So these are rodents, lizards, snakes, uh, pretty much all the bugs. Uh, those are all totally off limits. God is particularly strong in his language about this category of animals. He says they're detestable. Uh, don't, don't even come close to them. Probably the reason for this is because the way they move around is kind of uh, unpredictable. It's kind of strange and swarmy. And you know, there's something chaotic about that. You only became ritually impure when you touched a dead animal. So you could ride a camel, you could ride a horse, even though you're not supposed to eat them. Uh, you could ride them and that wouldn't make you impure but uh, you can't touch their dead bodies. The dead body is the really important thing. Again, this idea that things connected to death make you impure. Uh, all, but in this case, all you have to do, if you did touch an animal's dead body, which lots of people did all the time, you have to do it to eat them. Uh, when you do that, you, to become pure again, you just have to wait a little bit. You wait until the evening, you take a bath, and then you're ritually pure. Sounds strange to us, but the point is that God wants the Israelites to be constantly reminded that God is pure that there is a norm and that God is the norm, uh, that there is a standard for us and for our world, even for animals, uh, that we are made for life and order rather than death and chaos. That's the big point of it. God says in the verses I read earlier, chapter 11, verse 45, that the whole purpose of the food laws is to teach the people to, quote, make a distinction this is the same word that gets used in the first verses of the Bible back in Genesis when it talks about God creating the universe and it says that he makes separations. He separates the light and the darkness. He separates water. Same exact word, same idea. God says, I want you to learn to make distinctions. Why? God says there in chapter 11, he says, I want you to make these distinctions because I made a distinction. I made a distinction between you and everybody else. I want you to eat in this special choosy, picky way because I want you to be constantly remember that I graciously and specially chose you. I chose you from among the chaos and the death of all the nations. You're my special people. I chose you. And so as a reminder of that, I want you to be choosy with your food. Now that Jesus has come, this was in Mark 7, we read it earlier. Now that Jesus has come, you can eat whatever food you want. But even so, maybe more than ever, we should today see in and through our meals that God is graciously providing for his beloved people. When we go through the ritual, today we do this, a lot of us do this, we go through this ritual of praying for our food. Uh, what you are actually doing, you're not just going through the motions, I hope, sometimes I do that, uh, but what you are really doing when you pray for your meal is you are gratefully acknowledging that God has chosen you and that God is taking care of you and that God will provide for you, that this food is his sign of his love for you. So today, in a way, we are still applying these rules even though we don't actually make the distinctions anymore and you can eat all the shrimp you want. God is concerned that his people, this is true for all these rules, God is concerned that his people are constantly seeing his purity. Not just on certain days of the week, not just when they're doing certain religious activities. God wants his people, even in the mundane day-to-day -day details of their lives, to see that his grace has brought them back to him. And so food, we all have to eat. We all eat multiple times a day, most of us. Uh, food is a way to regularly do that. 
God's purity and grace are also shown, chapter 12, through childbirth. A woman, and perhaps her child, become ritually impure when she gives birth. Uh, The period of impurity lasted twice as long if she had a daughter. This is one of these things that's not clear. Why do, if you have a daughter, are you impure for longer? It doesn't tell you why. I don't think it's misogyny. It probably has something to do with the fact that a little boy, a little Israelite boy, would be circumcised part of the way through, and that his own circumcision, his own contribution of his own blood, so to speak, his own bloody ritual, somehow counts towards the purity countdown. That's my best guess of why do boys uh, not stay pure for as long as girls do. Now, why did childbirth make a woman ritually unclean? It probably mostly has to do with the fact that in childbirth, as many of you know, uh, you lose a lot of bodily fluids, especially blood. Blood is very important in Leviticus, in the Bible. Uh, In that sense, childbirth is evocative of death. Uh, When someone dies and their corpse rots, lots of fluids come out of them. When lots of blood come out of people, they're dying. Uh, Indeed, childbirth itself is incredibly dangerous, uh, far more than combat. Childbirth is so deathly that it rendered an Israelite woman ritually impure for a couple weeks. This is a major form of impurity. It's not like the kind where you touch a dead animal and you just have to wait until the evening. After this period of impurity, which probably would have allowed her to actually rest quite a bit and, and lay low from other people, maybe that's part of it, Uh, But after this period, she had to go offer a couple of sacrifices at the tabernacle. She first had to offer this sin offering that we learned about, the purification offering, to purify her from her general sinfulness. Having a baby is not in itself sinful, but the mother is sinful, and so sin offerings purify us from our general sinfulness. Uh, Her childbirth, uh, her act of going through labor should have reminded her of the fact that she is uh, deathly, that she is sinful, that she is in need of God's mercy and help. So she offers a sin offering, but she also offers a burnt offering. This is the one that shows that you are totally dedicated to God's service. Uh, Mary herself, Jesus' mother, offered these sacrifices uh, when Jesus was presented at the temple. Um, The Anglican Book of Common Prayer, at least one of the versions from a few hundred years ago, has this great little prayer. It has a whole little service designed for a woman's first time back at church after she has a baby. Uh, And it's getting at a lot of these same ideas as what Leviticus 12 is talking about. Uh, Here's part of that prayer that you're supposed to pray. It says when a woman comes back to church for the first time, she's had a baby, she's been laying low. Uh, Here, pray these things, it says. It says, pray, we give thanks, we give thee humble thanks for that thou hast been graciously pleased to preserve through the great pain and peril of childbirth this woman, thy servant, who desires now to offer her praises and thanksgivings to thee. And so that's a lot of what this is getting at, especially when the woman goes back to the tabernacle or the temple and offers these sacrifices. She's back in fellowship with God and with his people. Uh, She's dedicated to him as a mother. Uh, Today, uh, in a very sentimental age that breezily dismisses uh, the bedrock biblical principle that all people, even babies and children, are sinful, in a world that quickly dismisses the idea that babies or children are sinful, uh, this is perhaps a reminder for us today that even in something as wonderful and as joyful as childbirth, uh, we still need to see and know that our children are born to sinners, as sinners, into a world of sinners. In other words, childbirth, for us today, even if you don't become ritually impure anymore, childbirth uh, is an opportunity, a very vivid, serious reminder, joyful opportunity and reminder that our children, that we, that our families are utterly in need of God's grace. 
that we do not deserve to draw close to him, that not even our children do. We need him to make us pure. We need him to make our children and our grandchildren and our great-grandchildren pure. So God's purity and grace are shown through food, through childbirth, and then chapters 13 and 14 through uh, surface-level, quote-unquote, disease. Uh, There's a reason I'm naming it that way. Uh, This same word is used as it happens to people on their skin, Uh, probably things like psoriasis, maybe some really bad forms of eczema, but this same exact word is also used as it happens to people's houses and clothing, probably some form of mildew. Traditionally, this has been translated with the word leprosy, but it's actually quite clear that it's not actually talking about the actual disease of leprosy, Hansen's disease. Uh, Whatever uh, this is talking about, Hansen's disease, leprosy, today, is not one of these things for a couple of different reasons. The reason that God is concerned about this surface-level disease-spreading, discoloration, skin problems, wall problems, the reason that God is concerned about them is because they look and they act like death, because they look like the rotting of a corpse. They remind you that you are headed for the grave. The chapters lay out a whole series of procedures that priests would follow to determine whether or not somebody or someone or something had this disorder uh, and what to do about it if they did. If somebody was diagnosed with whatever this kind of skin disorder was, uh, that person would be exiled outside of the camp. He would have to go live away from everybody else. And very interestingly, chapter 13 tells us that he would have to go through the same kinds of rituals that people would go through when someone close to them died. He would need to tear his clothes. He needs to mess up his hair. He has to cover his face. Those are all mourning rituals. And God says, when you are diagnosed with this surface-level disorder on your skin, you need to go through mourning. One scholar says that that person would now be living in a living death. A living death. It's terrible. It's echoing what happened to Adam and Eve when they disobeyed God. God said, on the day that you eat of that fruit, you will surely die. They did not drop dead the moment they ate it, but they were dead. And even more than that, they had to leave. They were exiled. They had to go outside. But in chapter 14, there's this beautiful ceremony for if and when the skin disorder clears up. It's actually an amazing picture. If you haven't read it, I'd encourage you to go back and read it later. Uh, Leviticus 14 is an amazing picture of what God does for his people when he rescues them from the exile of death and bringing them home to be with him and near him to enjoy his life. The priest uh, in this ceremony goes out. Remember, this guy is living way outside. He's isolated from everybody else. The priest goes out to him with two doves. Uh, One of those doves is sacrificed, and then the blood from that dove gets sprinkled all over the man, and then the other bird who's still alive gets dipped into that blood. And then you take that other bird who's still alive, covered with blood, and you let it go. It flies away. That's probably a picture of the fact that the impurity of the man is now being carried away into the wilderness, never to return. Uh, The priest is supposed to use a branch of a a plant called hyssop. He's supposed to use a hyssop branch to sprinkle all this blood and to smear all this blood all over everything. And that's supposed to remind you of Israel's Passover in Egypt. Uh, Remember this Passover story? Every Israelite dad, uh, the night before they run out of Egypt, every dad and every family was supposed to paint his door with a hyssop branch, with the blood of an innocent lamb so that they wouldn't be destroyed by the angel of death as it flew over Egypt. In a sense, the Passover, the rescue from Egyptian bondage, was one giant corporate act of God bringing his diseased and deathly people 
back home to him. And so after this ceremony with the two birds outside the camp, the healed man now gets to come back to the tabernacle or to the temple, and he offers some more offerings. He's been fully restored now to life with God and among God's people. Uh, You have a very similar ceremony. This seems kind of strange, but it's actually really interesting. You have a similar ceremony for when your house gets this disease, when it has some kind of mildew. Uh, And part of the idea of even why the house has to go through this ceremony with blood and birds, and it's even called atonement, the house gets atoned for, part of the idea, I think, is to communicate that human sinfulness has also damaged our entire world and environment. It's supposed to communicate, I think, that God's redemption of us will also entail his redemption of the entire planet. Uh, We are not merely individuals living on our own. We're not even merely just humans. We're humans in a world of things and trees and plants and animals. The ceremony is an amazing picture of what God has done for everyone who has put their hope in Jesus what God has done to purify and rescue us from our sin, bringing us from exile back home, out of death, out of chaos, back to life, back to home, back to order. It's what God does for each one of us when we trust in Jesus. So we have God's purity and grace shown in food, God's purity and grace shown in childbirth, shown in skin surface disorders, and now the chapter everyone's been waiting for, God's purity and grace shown to us in genital discharges. Chapter 15, there are two for men and two for women. The first one uh, that we hear about in chapter 15 talks about an abnormal discharge for men. Uh, Probably at least gonorrhea is in view, but there's some other kinds that would fall under this category. And so if this happens to you, you become ritually impure for a week, and then if it's cleared up, you offer two birds as offerings. One as a purification offering. Remember, that's the one that cleanses you generally from your general sinfulness. And then also, too, you offer a burnt offering, total dedication to God. The other uh, second one for men is about more normal discharges, so to speak, uh, both the kinds that happen when you're sleeping and the kinds that happen when you are intimate with your wife. Uh, they make you and your wife ritually impure, but all you have to do is take a bath and wait until the evening. It's a minor form of impurity. Uh, This seems very strange. Some of you are very uncomfortable right now. Uh, But one of the big things that this would have meant for Israel is that their worship would have been very different than their neighbor's worship. Uh, In the ancient Near East, basically everywhere except Israel, uh, sex was a major part of the way that they worshiped their gods, like right in the middle of the temples. This was a big deal. Uh, And so then and now, one of the things that God was and is communicating to us is that sex is a good thing, but it's not an ultimate thing. That the things of God uh, are more of a priority than they are uh, for sexual intimacy and pleasure. Uh, So that's the the male's two discharges, and then then the female has two also. She has a normal one and an abnormal one. Uh, First, we hear about her normal discharge. That, of course, is her period. It makes her impure for a week, and then she just becomes pure. No sacrifices that she has to do or anything like that. Uh, Her abnormal discharge is some other form of bleeding. Uh, If and when that clears up, she offers two birds as a sacrifice, uh, purification from her general sinfulness, and then, again, the burnt offering, full dedication, fully uh, restored back into worship with God. And so, similarly to the mother's impurity from childbirth back in chapter 12, all of these things have to do with losing bodily fluids 
And so because, in a way, they evoke death, uh, they make you ritually impure and therefore unable for a time to approach God in worship. It seems very bizarre to us today, uh, but the bigger picture, the bigger point for us is that our bodily uh, diseases, our bodily disorders, even just normal run-of-the-mill sicknesses, all these things should at some level remind you of your sinfulness, of your brokenness, that things are not right, that things are not as they should be in this world, that you need God's grace, that God needs to restore you, and that God will restore you. Part of uh, particularly why these bodily fluids, why these discharges, part of the reason too is to emphasize that sexual brokenness and sexual sin are particularly powerful and painful expressions of the larger disorder of our lives and our world. The New Testament, again, these rituals no longer apply directly and literally, but they, they do continue to apply in some ways. The New Testament remains deeply concerned with the sexual purity of those who call themselves Christians. One of the biggest distinctives of the early Christians in the Roman world, just like it is or it should be today, one of the biggest distinctives back then was their approach to sex. Uh, This is one of the things that people thought was so strange about Christians. One of the things today that people think is so strange about us, even offensive. Why do you guys think about sex in this way? Uh, It's not a commodity to be traded, not a commodity to be taken, but rather it is a good gift from God to be received and enjoyed within the safe confines of a loving marriage. Sexuality is particularly potent in uh, showing God, or showing the world who God is and in what he wants from his people and what can go so wrong and what can be so painful when we disobey God. In the modern world, here's my conclusion. We're done talking about some of these weird things. Some of you are really relieved. Uh, in the modern world, we have this tendency to think that there is this huge divide between spiritual things and secular things. Uh, That God is only really concerned about or relevant to certain times, maybe Sunday mornings if you actually go to church, Uh, or maybe he's only concerned about or relevant to certain activities, things like reading your Bible, praying, uh, talking to people about Jesus, Uh, But even though these laws don't apply to us today in many of the ways they applied to the Israelites back then, even still God wants us today to see his purity and to see his grace in all kinds of ways. Not just some of the time, not just with some of the things we do, but all the time. Everything we do is meant to show us God's purity, our need, and his grace. Everything, even mundane things like food, even private things like sex. Today, God still wants us to constantly be considering him in all things, constantly be seeing our need, but most of all, constantly be seeing how generous he's been with us, what he's given us, what he's provided for us to come back to him. Of course, Jesus, we believe as Christians, Jesus has purified us once and for all with his death on the cross. We are now God's holy people in a way that Israel never could be. We are God's holy temple. The Old Testament prophet Ezekiel promised Uh, And it's true today. Through Jesus, God has sprinkled clean water on us. He has cleansed us from all of our uncleannesses. He loves us. He embraces us. He's near to us. He delights in us. In and from this new state of purity that we can never lose, in and from that state, 
Whatever we eat, whatever we drink, whatever we do, whatever our vocations are, whatever our callings are, no matter how little they might seem in the eyes of the world, everything that God gives you to do, God says, now do it for my glory. It's all for me. We are pure, and because we are already pure, we also now joyfully pursue purity in whatever we do, whatever we say, whatever we think, whatever we feel. God wants our entire lives, drawing close to him in his purity and in his beauty is what we were made to do. We'll be doing it forever and ever after death. Let's pray. Father, thank you for making us pure in Jesus, just as he is pure. Thank you for cleansing us from the dirtiness and the filth of the things that we have done, the things that have been done to us. Uh, Lord, help us to see how deeply we need your love and your mercy and your grace and your purity in all aspects of our lives every day, every hour of every day. But Lord, most of all, help us to see your love. Help us to see your grace. Help us to see that you have provided a sacrifice, that you have provided a way to come home. Help us to see that. And in that, Lord, give us new strength so that we might uh, live a more outwardly and inwardly pure life. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.